Welcome to Season 2 of Cheek by Jowl's podcast, Not True But Useful. I'm your host, Lucy Dawkins. These episodes are going out into the world at a time when theatre is in suspended animation. So as an antidote, I'll be chatting to Declan Donnellan and Nick Ormerod, the director-designer duo behind Cheek by Jowl. They're going to share life lessons that they've learned from staging great classic plays, which might help tide us through these strange times. We can't promise that any of these lessons will be true, but we hope you find them useful. Hello, Declan and Nick. Hello, Hello. So we're recording today on a really odd day because we've just discovered that some version of lockdown is rolling back into London. We're at the opposite ends of a long table with a set of mics. Getting back into live theatre seems ever more distant. How is that making you think and feel about the job that we're doing, or at the moment, that we're very far away from doing? Well, I think we're just desperate to get back to doing what we do. I mean, it's very frustrating. The essence of theatre is that you're together with live people, and that's what we can't do at the moment. And... We need it. We absolutely need theatre and we need to be together with people. And so Nick and I are watching a lot of television. We do normally anyway to relax and now we have to, you know. And it made me think very much about how um, in order to do something important with somebody else, you need to be in the same room as them. And, you know, we can laugh and talk about the internet as a sort of new technology that's taken over. But actually words are a new technology and we need to really meditate on the big lie of in the beginning was the word. Human beings communicated very, very well for millennia before words came along. And we live that with our mothers just after we're born, you know, that there are no words, and you actually have quite a sophisticated communication in many respects. And so when we're with people in the same space, we have many different ways of communicating with each other, of which we are unconscious. And you know, there are sort of science fiction things written about extrasensory perception, you know, as ESP, as if there's some magic thing about having more than five senses. Well, of course we have more than five senses. That's why you want to be with a friend, not just zoom it into them. But particularly those of us who love theatre, you know, a film can be bad, TV can be bad, but when theatre's bad, it's really bad. It's like when theatre's bad, the assault is much deeper because the communication is so much more multifarious and profound. And when we do theatre, particularly live theatre, we are in a space and we are affected by, and we affect back what's happening. The performance has to be open to interference from the audience, however slight. And that is, that's like everything. It's not just a small detail. It's actually everything about how we live. It, it just made us think about how incredibly important life theatre to be in a real space with real people in real time is. Taped, videoed, filmed, watching that is interesting. It's a completely different art form. It can be absolutely wonderful, but it's no substitute for the other thing. You can't bring up a child by Skype. Our play of the week is Shakespeare's The Winter's Tale, which is as good a story as any about the hope that life will go on after a difficult time like this. Declan and Nick have tackled this play in two languages, once in Russian and once in English. In fact, the music that you're hearing in this episode was composed by Paddy Ganeen for the recent British production. Here's a quick recap of the story. At the start, Leontes and Hermione, the king and queen of Sicily, are expecting their second child. 
Leontes falls into a jealous mania, suspecting that his best friend Polixenes, king of Bohemia, is the real father of the baby. He convicts Hermione of treason, and she pleads her innocence. Leontes separates her from their son, Mamilius, who then dies suddenly from the trauma. Hermione goes into early labour when she hears the news. Her friends, Paulina and Camillo, smuggle the baby girl, called Perdita, out of the castle and into Bohemia. They tell Leontes that Hermione died in childbirth. The baby Perdita is found and raised by some shepherds. Sixteen years pass and she falls in love with a local teenager, Florizel, who is in fact the Prince of Bohemia in disguise. In other words, he is the son of Polixenes, whom Leontes had accused of having an affair with Hermione. At a sheep shearing festival, Polixenes catches Florizel with Perdita, who he thinks is a shepherdess. He orders his son to end the relationship immediately. Florizel and Perdita elope to Sicily, where Perdita's true identity as the princess is revealed. Perdita and Leontes meet for the first time, Leontes and Polixenes are reconciled, and Perdita and Florizel are allowed to marry. In the very final scene, Paulina brings them all to see a statue of the dead Hermione. It comes to life, and mother, father and daughter are reunited. So, this is a play that you've done not once but twice. And what is the thing in it that initially hooks your attention, that set your imaginations running and made you really want to put this play on stage? It's hard to say because we've we played games with ourselves and tricks on ourselves and we think of what is it we could do well that we've got good actors to do. So that's how we... In our conscious mind, we are, we are very practical in the plays that we choose. Then when afterwards, when you're coming out of it and the doing of it with the actors, you realise that it's actually speaking of something that goes very deep in you. But what slowly reveals itself to you when you do the plays are things that you never knew were there. And that's why whenever you do a play, it's always completely different the next time round that you do it. So there's very little that we carried over from the first to the second production, apart from the fact that... Um, about Mamilius. So, Nick, what's so fascinating about Mamilius in this play? Well, Mamilius is the young prince who suffers at the hands of his dysfunctional parents. And he dies. And that is a hinge on the play. And from thereafter, Leontes goes into uh, an enormous withdrawal in grief, but is finally somehow redeemed and Hermione returns initially as a statue and then is brought to life magically. And in our first conversations about the play, it was always the death of Mamilius, I remember, Declan, that you said that this was kind of key and is actually not very strong in the play because it's simply announced that Mamilius, we don't see him die in, in the play. It's announced from off. But that was the key to designing it, to make that much more concrete I designed this large crate, which explodes and reveals the dead prince. I have to say, I found that moment totally devastating because that box, the long box that filled most of the stage and made the stage seem much narrower than the actual stage was. And at that moment when all the sides fell down and suddenly the literal horizon expanded, you could see all the way to the back and this tiny little body, fragile, left in the middle of it. You just changed with such a simple gesture, completely changed the rules of the space. It was like the dimensions expanded in a second. But it also reminded me that there's something that occurs in nearly every Cheek by Joel show that I've seen, which is that you 
both tend to point out a part of the, the story which we would otherwise overlook. There's no secret to that apart from it's a negative secret. This is about what you get rid of. And the important thing is to suspend your judgment. So if you can just delay that, like gratification, if you can just delay that moment of delicious judgment and unconscious punishment, then actually you, the world becomes much clearer. And we make ourselves stupid by judging too soon. One of the things that happens in The Winter's Tale is that, yes, the boy dies, but he goes on and on afterwards, and it's still all about him. Um, it's like <laughs> it's like Leontes, these terrible things happened to him, but his son's died. You know, sackcloth and ashes are really easy to do. Pain is quite a defence sometimes against actual experience. But Leontes not only kills his wife, but he also kills his son. And they kind of forget about him, really. It's what I loved so much about the last moment of the play where the surviving members of the family... Mm. Leontes and Perdita and Hermione are finally reunited mm. and you had them all in this beautiful Im kind of sculptural embrace in the centre of the stage and the little Mamilius suddenly appeared in the corner and the only person who saw him was Leontes yeah. and that fabulous moment of realising that nothing was fixed at the end of this play. And again, I mean, I, it's something that is a really consistent idea, especially at the ends of your productions, where you tend to reveal something to us about where we haven't been looking. I remember you did it in your production of Twelfth Night, where you gave Malvolio, mm. um, I'll be revenged on the whole pack of you. You took his last line and made it the last line of the very whole play, where we suddenly realised that, as the audience, that we hadn't been looking hard enough in the right direction. Yes. And the way that you reveal these hidden moments, this negative space, um, I think calls on our responsibility as the audience a lot more. Yeah. It makes us complicit in the play. Mm. Uh, it's a very active relationship with the story that's happening in front of us. Yes. Of course it can happen in movie and TV, but it's the lack of passivity of theatre, the fact that you are involved. And that's why when it's not very well done... We feel so aggrieved. Can we talk a little bit about how your ideas change when you go into rehearsal? So I've often heard you say that you throw out ideas as soon as you get into rehearsal, that whatever yeah. ideas you take in with you, you tend to shed as soon as you find bigger and better ones with the actors. Yes. Really, ideas are cheap if they're not born organically. And what arises from the rehearsal room changes us. So it's not like we change our ideas. The, the thing is to make sure that your ideas are something that are disposable. Otherwise, the thing that was a fortress is going to become a prison. Now, I know, particularly in scene one mm. of this production, you had a huge change quite mm. late on in rehearsal. So mm. you started this scene with a huge waltz with the mm. whole of the court. Mm. And it changed to a very simple but mm. very effective rendition of the scene where they're sat on mm. long benches mm. facing out of the audience as Leontes presents this sort of mm. psychotic vision of what's going on with his yeah. wife and best friend. How did that change happen? Well, I think we went in with a hangover from the previous Russian production of having a group scene. And we thought we were going to begin with a waltz. Um, and we did a lot of work on the waltz. Um, actually, we always, while we're waiting for life to break out in the room, we do work on movement, music, song, dance. Not on the meaning of the words. The worst thing you can do is start a rehearsal trying to fix the meaning of the words. Because words don't have fixed meaning. So you have to find all sorts of ways 
around and about the play to go in. So we had an idea of starting with the walls. It was going to give us a sense of nostalgia for later on. It's going to give us a sense of passing time. But then um, Nick had this idea. I don't know where it came from. Um, it was quite late on. And we brought the, act, the rest of the actors on later and the, and, and the protagonist just faced us from the front row. I have to say at this moment, though, that we talk, Nick and I talk as if it all comes sort of neatly from our collaboration. But actually, we collaborate with a lot of people. And The Winter's Tale was the last time we'd worked so purely, in a way, with um, our usual collaborators, who are Paddy Kinnean, who composes our music, Jane Gibson, who does all of our dance and movement and choreography, and D. Judith Greenwood, who does our lights. And, and the ideas arise from these people. And what you see on stage is very much what's arisen from them and, of course, what's come from the company as well. So sometimes things are got rid of. So to, we, did, we did a lot of work on an opening waltz that was going to be a kind of sad waltz that came back and back and we felt that could hold the whole evening together. But all that work that those people have put into it was still there. It's kind of pregnant in those still forms. You know, you have to, behind all stillness, there's movement. How do you digest these change in, changes in ideas? And how, what's the process for that? Under the conditions that we have in Cheek by Jar, it is possible to change things. And the people that we work with are brilliant at changing things. Angie Burns, who does uh, the costumes, will take on board total changes after, well, after two weeks, leaving her only four weeks, perhaps, to um, entirely redo the costume. And Jane and Paddy, too. You know, I have many thousands of years in purgatory to face <laughs> terrible last-minute changes that they've said, okay. And, um, and I still can't quite understand why it worked. But the more they became attached to the bench, the more it seemed to work. As soon as they lost that anchor in the space, as it were, it sort of became a bit fuzzy. Yes, I've noticed that too, that very often a line is dead. But sometimes if the actor touches something like another person or a chair or something or even the proscenium arch, that life can come in. And, you know, I've tried to analyse it and I've thought, oh, it means they have, they have to root themselves in space, they have to locate themselves, they have to be somewhere. But at the end of the day, I can't really explain it. We must be very careful of thinking that anything I don't understand doesn't exist or anything I don't understand is magic. Actually, just because I don't understand something doesn't mean to say it's magic. And although, you know, I, I need to try to understand it because it's kind of like how we're bred in a way and try to understand things so we don't make mistakes and so on. But at the end of the day, the best way to understand is to know that if it's in any way important, we're never going to have a full understanding. So, yeah, sometimes touching, but sometimes not touching. You can't, you, I can't make a rule, you know. Well, we were talking about this the other day, about the fact that it would just be so reassuring if we could have a written toolkit, directions for directing. I always think that, you know, Moses was sent up the mountain and he said, God says, you know, you're doing fine. They said, no, we want rules. And so he finally comes down with two, numbers one and number two. And um, the people say, that's not enough. That's not enough. We want more rules, more rules, because if we don't have rules, how can we live? And God says, no, you're not having any more than two and then Moses sits on the mountainside and he carves another eight out. And he says, how about ten? And they say, well, can't we have more about property and sex? And he says, no, that's your lot. And that's how it starts. And it's to do with how we are. We love the rules. It's a, a permanent human problem to want freedom but not responsibility. 
And that's a very problematic part of our makeup. But funnily enough, I think this is a good rule. And if young directors want to rule, (laughs) no, for auditions, actors come with a a speech they've learnt, they stand in the space, and they come out with a speech. The first thing to say to them is go and touch something. Go and touch a chair or get a chair or touch Mm. the wall. And it transforms them. It's quite extraordinary. Mm. Well, that was so what was so fascinating about seeing that first scene that way, because the impression that I got from the audience was that he was holding on to this little life raft, this tiny little image that he couldn't get rid of. He was literally clinging, clinging to it because he was stuck to this bench. Yes. And it's so exciting to hear about a process where there's a hunch about why it works. And it creates such a clear image Mm. for the audience, but it's not an image that's prescriptive. I'm sure the person sitting next to me took a different message from from that. It's connected with gratitude, because you need to be grateful for when something works. Then what we tend to want to do is analyse it, so we can make sure we we can have it on Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. But the problem Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday, we'll have to be grateful again, because we're not completely sure. And, you know... (laughs) It's like the aunties can't be grateful that Polixenes has been there and is now going to go. And the pain of that is so awful, he'd rather invent all sorts of things as a defence. It's a protection mechanism to think that Polixenes and um, Hermione are having an affair. It protects him from the real humiliation of feeling his incredible pain that his childhood friend is leaving. I think, I don't know, I mean, I just assume it. But it, it helps me into it. And maybe if we do the play in 20 years' time, it'll be different, seem different again. I think that leads us nicely into our next question, which is about leaving room for mystery. Mm. So this play has got a very famously mysterious moment at the end where we meet Hermione, who apparently changes from a sculpture into a living, breathing human woman again. Now, lots of productions try and sort of solve this. They try and create a, a version where... Hermione has actually been in hiding all these years and it's a kind of visual trick that she's doing. Other productions stage it as an out-and-out piece of magic. What I loved about your version of it is that you don't solve that for us. You simply show it to us. How did you get there? Why did you choose to do it that way? I have to say that at the end of The Winter's Tale and perhaps The Tempest and Cymbeline and so on, there are these extraordinary moments of transfiguration and other kind of epiphanic revelations. But actually all Shakespeare's works like that. It's just very rarely that he, he, he puts mystery on stage in such a very clear way with a great big arrow pointing at it. As he said, what do you think about this? But earlier in the play, you see, we've had the big mystery of why does he think Polixenes and Hermione have been having sex together? And I think it's possibly because he has a psychotic interlude. He clearly does. I think, personally, that what precipitates it is Polixenes leaving. I don't know that for sure. I'm not there to judge, but I'm there to sort of contemplate the huge mystery of why people can suddenly lose it and destroy their lives forever. And that is very interesting. And that's a pretty daily occurrence, actually. Um, you know, when people do things that are self-destructive and don't understand why, what's good about Shakespeare is his articulation of mystery. Which I, I go on about Macbeth. Macbeth is not just a good thriller. It uses that form, but actually it articulates enormous mysteries, which, again, like, why do we destroy ourselves so relentlessly? Um, that's perhaps one of them. I don't know. I can't even say what the mysteries are in it. But it's like in The Winter's Tale, it kind of comes out for stage. Pauline says in those incantatory lines, it is required you to awake your faith. And you have to sit with mystery, which involves sitting with uncertainty. And it's the last thing anyone wants to do. 
And that's why people like to control mystery and sell it to us in the form of packaged religions, because you can make a lot of money out of it. But it's not mystery anymore. Mystery is a, a kind of um, huge human thing, and all we can do is gaze at it together and, and possibly hold each other's hands while we do. And so does this frighten you, it frightens me. So as we said, this is a play that toured all over the world. I actually saw it in in America at BAM, which is a massive stage with a hugely high proscenium arch. It's very different from the Barbican stage, where I know it performed here in the UK. And a lot of the design was playing with dimension and space and changing our our perception of the horizon through the use of this, this box. As the play tours, did these different spaces inform the images differently or change the feeling of the production, do you think? Yes, I mean, the space itself, the concrete space that that we play in, can give huge energy to the whole piece. And I remember in BAM at Harvey, I mean, that that's an, an amazing space, opens up right back to the famous um, red ochre wall. When we did Measure for Measure, the first English Measure for Measure in 1994, we used to strip out the whole stage. And completely changed the mise-en-scene according to the theatre. And once they'd emptied out the theatre, there'd be always wonderful gangways and fire exits and things on stage that people could make exits and entrances through. And we loved doing that. So that's that's kind of like a normal thing that we did very often of um, actually exploiting the venues that where we've gone to. And I've noticed that you often like playing with scale, stripping out theatres so that you've got massive yeah. cavernous space around these fragile mm. and ardent mm. bodies that you're putting on stage. Why is it that you enjoy that so much, do you think? We don't like the auditorium to be so big that the audience can't hear. So as long as the person furthest away can hear what's happening without microphones, we're absolutely fine. But we adore a huge football pitch stage so that people can really run across it. But one of the reasons is, it's funny enough, is to see people run. There's something very depressing about a stage that's so small that a human being can't run on it. You know, if you go to Western Theatre and see a realistic set taking up the space, you think, okay, there's going to be no explosion of energy on, on stage tonight unless something extraordinary happens. We love people to, to be able to run, to have the choice to run, even if they're going to remain very still. The fact that there is a possibility that they might tear across the stage is wonderful. Also, what's so interesting about looking at this particular production with both of you, because mm. you have done this twice, it has changed over time. You did it with a Russian company, and then you did it with a British company. And looking back on that process, what can you tell about what changed for you in this play? Well, I think, first of all, we were in a city that was changing its name from Leningrad to St. Petersburg. And so we were very full of what that was like, you know, 96, 97, the new Russia was being formed and being very much, one might say, ignored by the West. So what we felt on the streets was coming in. So one of the very few very long discussions we had was that I thought it would be an idea if Hermione came on like Lenin because the whole system is really predicated around the Soviet shame of death because a very materialistic religion like the Soviet religion can't deal with death. And so they're very embarrassed when the leader dies. And finally, he's embalmed, and that solves it. And I thought it would be very good if Hermione did that. And Nick didn't, and he was quite right. You know, the director's making a, a sort of clever idea statement. 
I thought it would be a great theatrical coup. I've got a bit weaned off that because I think it would have been rather clever. You'd have suddenly noticed the fell hand of the director in not good way. Do you remember that conversation? Yes, yes. To me, that's an image of death as opposed to potential life, as it were. Or, mm-hmm. And a statue isn't portrayed lying down. No, no quite. Is, well, in our case... In both cases, she was sitting. Yes, that's because in both cases, we felt that the dramatic actions in the eyes of the people apprehending her coming to life, so that you think the centre of the scene is Hermione coming to life, but actually it's to do with what that means to the people watching her coming to life. That's where the real miracle takes place, in a way. Declan, could you share with us your favourite line in The Winter's Tale? Well, that's very hard, because there are so many. I do have lines going around my head that mean a lot to me because they're mysteries. But I think occasionally sometimes doing something in a foreign language helps because you realise when you have the translation that doesn't work, it helps you realise why the Shakespeare is so profound. So the Nyedic translation in the Russian Winter's Tale for Paulinus's Hermione dying. She says to Leontes, look, she's turned quite cold. The Shakespeare original version is look down and see what death is doing. And... The second one is so much infinitely better because it's dynamic, it's felt, it's about death as a process. Pauline's very good at getting us to sort of actually shut up, just shut up and see what's happening. That's what she's saying at the end when she asks us to be silent. And stopping talking is always very important in Shakespeare. What about you, Nick? What's your favourite line in the play? Leontes welcomes Florizel and Perdita with the line... Welcome are you as spring is to the earth. I don't know, it's some kind of encapsulates the whole redemptive nature of the play. I mean, it's about life from death. And on that hopeful note, that's all from us for this week. If you want to see images of Cheek by Jell's productions of The Winter's Tale, check out the archive on the website. You can find it in the podcast notes. Join us in the next episode as we dive into John Ford's Tis Pity, She's a Whore. Until then, stay well.